Hello, everyone. Don and I are so excited to talk about the book Simplicity by Richard Rohr. And the subtitle is The Freedom of Letting Go, mm. which definitely dun, dun, dun. <laughs> definitely sums up the book. <laughs> but before we start that conversation, should we begin in prayer? Yes. I, the prayer that I have in mind is very much inspired by this book. Mm-hmm. Mother, Father, God, thank you so much for Richard Rohr and for this wisdom. We ask that you help us to let go of anything that is hindering us from experiencing you. Help us to let go of the need to be right, let go of the need to be powerful or successful, let go of the need to even be able to make sense of it, and simply to sit with it. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this book turned my world upside down Uh when we read it. When you said the thing about books being teachers, He's definitely one that stands out to me as a teacher of ours. Because I feel like once you read him or listen to him talk, like he has a million talks out there that you can look up and stuff, you hear him over and over again in your mind. That's And then not, like you hear your own voice over and over again in your mind, which I think is fascinating. Right. Or in terms of this book, The American Voice. Yes. Right. Oh, so the right? big I, there's so many big takeaways. I could talk about this book for hours, but one of the biggest things is he talks about Americans have inadvertently turned the gospel into practice of adding, yes, adding success, adding humility, adding works for the for the those in need, becoming better people. Yeah. All of that that work of adding turning the gospel into self control. Right. As opposed to self-surrender. Yeah. Oh, right? That just right. gets me. Yeah. And that what, is it, what does it mean to let go and empty yourself? Yes. As soon as you see it that way, and he brings you back to some of the stories from Jesus, you say, of course. Right. That is what Jesus came to upend. <laughs> yes. Is that lie about adding, adding, adding. That, mm-hmm. that freedom comes from adding more things, more right. holiness, more... Right. More better behavior. Doubling down. Right. And, yep. More better relationships. I'm going to work on this marriage and all I'm of gonna that I'm going to build stuff. community. Right. I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> We're going to fix this broken school. Yes. We're going to end poverty in Haiti. Right. All right. these things. And not that those are bad. Right. But they it, it's... Just and that really, is part of the work. Right. That is part of the work. And yet how you approach it means everything, you know, it will change everything, your experience of it, some of the outcomes, all of that. I'm going to start with this quote that I think about at least once a week. (laughs) So this is a quote from the book on page 40. He says, in my opinion, there are three primary things that we have to let go of. First is the compulsion to be successful. Second is the compulsion to be right, even and especially to be theologically right. Finally, there is the compulsion to be powerful, to have everything under control. I'm convinced that these are the three demons Jesus faced in the wilderness. And so long as we haven't looked these three demons in the face, we should presume that they're still in charge. Mm -hmm. I just love that. Especially the part about letting go of the need to be right, especially theologically right. Because sometimes I'd go to church or any kind of church event, Mm -hmm. and it would kind of feel like, well, if something, if I don't agree with something... I You've can't got it surrender wrong. to the group. 
<laughs> and so I'm not going to line up with that kind of thinking or that kind mm-hmm. of like, well, he's wrong about that. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with the way he expressed that. This need to be right. Yeah. As and, and I do need to struggle and question and take push this up journey. against. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I have to agree with everything, but it means that if I don't agree, so what? Right. I can let that go. I don't need to be right. Right. And I especially don't need to be theologically right. <laughs> I just love that. It just gave me so much freedom right away that next week at church. Because you know I love like the singing and all of that. That's right. just who I am. Yeah. But sometimes like if a lyric in a song, because uh-huh. you know, some of the songs, sure. especially the ones that have. We're going home to heaven. Right. Like, oh, and when all the earth dissolves. <laughs> yes. And so I would sit there being like, it would ruin the song for me. Right. And to say, you know what? Okay, I disagree with that theologically, but I don't need to be theologically right. And uh-huh. I'm just going to sing the song and surrender. I'm so glad spirit. you said that because I still sit there and fume a little bit. So that's good for me to hear. I <laughs> yeah. do. Well, and it was robbing me of one of my favorite things about church, mm-hmm. which is singing and music and all of that. Yep. And the corporate piece yeah. of that. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm glad that 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 happened for you and that you could put it specifically into that situation because that's what I think a lot of what he says is so universally it rings to me universally true but then the particular of it in your own life you know because sometimes getting ready for this talk today I tried to reread the book and it was blowing my mind in whole different ways you know and I thought oh my gosh I'm not even going to be able to grasp like to nail down exactly what um, has been so powerful for me in his work, in his writing. It's, I don't know what the word is. It's like holding on to something that is, slippery makes it sound negative, but you can't nail it all down. And that's okay. There's still parts of it when you read him that are going to trickle into your life that you're going to pick up. Like you said, I think about this almost every week. And there was when I first... I think it was Jen Hatmaker that may have quoted him in one of her books, but I wrote down his quote from another book and carried it around with me. But the quote has to do with what he talks about throughout the whole book, I think, the bias toward the bottom. But it's this really beautiful quote about even as Christians, American Christians, there's this idea that climbing the ladder, building things. You could secularize the idea, that image of climbing the ladder, you know, like that makes sense to almost every American like of course you're going to try to do better you're going to do better for your kids you're going to you know move up the corporate ladder like there's all those pieces to that image and he talks about as a Christ follower if you really want to follow him you're going to descend the ladder which of course like the incarnation like Jesus humbled himself came down to our level became one of us and to think about my work my challenge as a Christ follower being to get lower, to go down, to step down, to let others go ahead of me, to be among people whom I would consider are the bottom and Jesus says they aren't, you know, (laughs) seems so obvious if you've read scripture at all. And yet it was mind blowing for me to read that and to, to keep that image in my mind. I'm not trying to climb the ladder. I'm trying to descend it. I'm trying to get smaller. I'm trying to, I want to say he even talked about zip codes in that. Like Jesus is in the zip code that you don't want to be in. And particularly for me with moving, you know, and thinking about like I am, lo- I am looking up homes in zip codes. 
And who am I going to be amongst? And where would Jesus put himself? Where would he insert himself? And Richard's talk about the bias toward the bottom, I just think is so beautiful. It makes me want more. Like, (laughs) not in a climbing sense, but (laughs) I want to hear more about that. I want to talk more about that. I want to understand what that means in people's lives. If you decided to stop climbing the ladder and decided to move down a rung, what does that look like in your life? That, I think, let's have like, you know, women's book studies about that. (laughs) And as a woman, I experienced some of that teaching as freedom. Mm -hmm. And it goes along with the whole notion of professional priesthood. Yes. Right? So there are these professional pastors and they know they are at the top of that theological ladder. Right. And they are telling us the right way to think about all this. Yes. When I always have had a sense that I know and I have something to contribute, they could learn from me. We can all learn from each other. And so to read that as a woman, like, because I stand in a place of privilege as a white American and all of that, and I'm well-educated. And so I do have to acknowledge all of that. Mm -hmm. But also as a woman, in the context of church, Mm -hmm. I can understand that feeling of, I always accepted the notion the lie, if you will, Mm -hmm. that these people on top that have all the education about God and they're biblical scholars and they've gone to divinity school and all they're experts in their denomination and maybe why their denomination is better than the other denominations, (laughs) that they are leading me and I have no business leading myself. Right. And then you read that and you say, no, that's backwards. The professional priesthood is kind of a paradox. Yes, yes. And you've... You said that, I've heard you say it numerous times, sometimes like almost as a whisper and other times as like a proclamation. We're all priests, you know, and that should be freeing to all of us, you know, that that the spirit is working in each of us and speaking truth to each of us in a way that we can hear it specifically, uniquely to us and putting us in places where we are uniquely fitted to let that spirit flow through us to others. To remove that hierarchy is so freeing to be able to actually participate in the life God has for us, to trust that. And I love that you you exemplify that and you I've heard you say it a bunch of times and each time it makes me like, it encourages me. Anyway, I knew you were going to say that about this. I'm thrilled. <laughs> and even with this podcast with Ephesians, and you mm-hmm. know, I love to read the scriptures and all of that. But I do feel a little bit like, well, who am I to tell people of about course. Ephesians? Right. Right. Like, I didn't go to divinity school. Right. I don't know the history. I don't have the Hebrew mm-hmm. context. I know a little bit from other teachers. Mm-hmm. I've, I have that as an obstacle for me here, mm-hmm. that we, we want to talk about Ephesians. This is the reading that, goes, that we chose to go mm-hmm. along with this book. Yep. But I feel a little intimidated. Sure. Which is, again, why letting go of the need to be right letting go of the need to be successful, letting go of the need to be powerful is so, I keep using the word beautiful, but it's the word that comes in line with how we're made, you know, um, alignment. I think of peace or harmony. Yes. Waking up to ourselves. Yes. And I guess shalom, you know, the word like the of peace in in the sense of wholeness. Um, That's a word that non-Jewish people, we don't really 
have a, the full sense of what that really conveys and yet a glimpse of it. Like each time I hear it, it sort of breathes to me. Letting go is an on-ramp to that, I think. As Americans, as Christian Americans, <laughs> how do we begin to let go? <laughs> when everything tells you not to. Right. Everything tells you to protect and hold on, cling. And so even our prayer life mm-hmm. that we most of us taught is either very rigid and all of that, there's there's... There's usefulness in mm-hmm. all of that, but we kind of miss the other side, which Richard Rohr talks about as contemplative prayer. Yes. So what's your experience with contemplative prayer? Most recently, I had the experience. Um, it was a Sunday morning, and I had the choice. My family was doing other things, and I had the choice between getting ready for church and going or sitting outside in my yard um, in my chair And for different people, the choice seems obvious. For some people, it's like, oh, it's the chair, you know. For other people, it's like, are you kidding me? It's Sunday. You go to church, right? So I live in both of those worlds. I have one foot in both of those worlds equally. And what tipped me to my decision was the fact that I'm putting my house on the market and I'm leaving a home that I love in a place that I think is beautiful and rich and, you know, speaks to me. And so I chose the chair. And I just went in the house and got another cup of coffee and I came back out and let go of the guilt of, you know, pleasing others and going to church, you know, what that would mean if I had fulfilled, you know, (laughs) expectations of people, whatever. Physically, yeah, had to think through all that and, and sort of park it over here and set it aside and say, no, I'm going to sit here. And I didn't have a book which is normally what I would have, a book or, you know, I just had the coffee and the dog and the chair. I could hear birds singing, and I don't know if they're locusts or not. Like, I know they only come around a certain, but, you know, that high hum, it was still summertime, blue sky and clouds, and I felt God's presence so pure, And I wasn't thinking about anything. I had to also let go of the list of things that, you know, (laughs) when you try to get an old home ready to be shown and sold, the list was endless and setting that aside. And those things would creep in and I would just keep kind of setting them aside, you know, and just feeling held like in that peace, that wholeness, that sense of God's goodness that regardless of how anything goes, and I can't even say I was thinking specific thoughts. I wasn't praying about my worries. I wasn't, I wasn't even like thinking about my family in prayer. I was just sitting there taking it in. And that was, I don't know, I guess a bunch of people say like the sanctuary of being outdoors, you know, and being like in nature, your feet are actually in the grass or the dirt, you know, being connected, feeling that connection. So that, to me, was my most recent and really powerful sense of letting go and just, you know, letting the spirit in. How about you? Well, you've been on well, a journey. I've been on a journey. My experience is it's hard. It's hard for me. Mm-hmm. I, even in my prayer life, I want to get something done. It's just terrible. I, it's mm-hmm. hard for me to let go of. So I've tried meditation just You know, when you feel a thought coming, go, oh, there's a thought and letting it go, Mm -hmm. all of that, not condemning myself for having thoughts. But at the end of the day, I was trying to do it twice a week for 20 minutes. I just felt like I couldn't afford the time. 
Mm-hmm. But one thing that has worked for me is if I'm walking the dogs in the woods mm-hmm. and I live here in this lush woods in rural Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And when I'm walking the dogs in the woods, I can either think about my list as I'm walking and I still am, I'm still experiencing the temple out there, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But I'm not letting it, I'm not giving it enough space because it's easy, depending on what's going through my head on any given day, it's possible to do the whole loop through the woods and just think about my list and all the other stuff the whole time. Mm-hmm. So to do that walking meditation of like, sometimes I do the one which is as I'm breathing in, I'm thinking here. And as I'm breathing out, I'm thinking see. So hear, like hear the sounds mm-hmm. and see, mm-hmm. hear the sounds and see. And it just keeps me in the moment. Mm-hmm. And even in between those breaths, my mind will wander. Mm-hmm. But then I'll go, oh, oh, here, see, here, see. Or maybe a more traditional one, grace, praise, breathe Mm -hmm. in with grace, breathe out, praise, grace, praise, grace, praise with each breath Mm -hmm. as I'm walking. Mm -hmm. So it helps me to be walking. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just because my body is doing something. Sure. So it helps my mind settle. Yep. And even in times in my life when I've been very anxious or stressed out those seasons, I would actually be a jogger for a few months <laughs> because it was the only thing to kind of settle sure. my mind. Yep. So for me, that is the way I've been able to access this at all, mm-hmm. that contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. But also I feel like when you get to the end of yourself, yeah. and I don't know if he talks about that in this book or other books. Well, I want you to finish your thought okay. and then I'll tag into that. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I had two miscarriages before Rosalie was born. And the first one, they were both more devastating than I ever thought they should be. Mm -hmm. So there was that whole self-beating up of, this happens to everybody. It's no big deal. Yeah. You know, there's a reason or whatever. You know, you can, a lot of people, even with a secular perspective, will be like, well, there's a reason that your body knew there was something not viable or that kind of thing. But none of that helps when you're in that place. Mm -hmm. So in between the first and the second miscarriage, my mind was just full of striving and panic. You know, like, well, we'll do this and I'll give up this and I'll exercise and the vitamins and and this has to happen. That kind of what if we can't have children and that sort of panic and that grasping was completely possessing me. And so then I got pregnant again. And when I had the second miscarriage, I was visiting. I was in Utah visiting my brother. And also then then we went our separate ways and I stayed with a friend who lives near Salt Lake City. And I was at her house when it happened. Mm. So it was an old friend that I hadn't seen for years. It, I was so vulnerable. I was at her house. We sure. hadn't seen each other for five years. She was wonderful, but it was still, it was just so awkward and her husband and all of that. Right. And I got on the plane and I kind of hold, hold it all together. And I got in my car finally at the airport and I just, I let it all go and I just surrendered. And that was for me, that experience too, of finally I could hear God. Yeah. I got to the end (laughs) of what I could do. Like, well, I can't have children. My career is crap. (laughs) I don't know, God. You were loading it on. That's it. I, whatever you want to do, this is, I'm at the end of what I think I could do. Yeah. And I felt his presence more powerfully than I ever have right. before or since. Isn't that amazing? Just that yeah. comfort and that wrapping and that peace and that he loves me so tenderly. And is with you through yes. all of that. Yes. Yep. 
So it's awful when you have to get to that kind of circumstance to and be yet, able to hear God. But this is what I love about what Richard Rohr says. There's two things that what you're saying are in my mind about him. The first, in rereading the book, he says over and over again, you have underlined it because I read through your book, circumstances convert us, not sermons. Amen. Right? <laughs> I mean, hello. That is so true. Ask anyone. It's your circumstances. It's the things that happen to you and God speaking to you in that that convert us, that change us, that move us to a different direction, which is so much more accessible for anyone, right? That's for everyone. You don't have to listen to a sermon. You don't have to listen to a podcast. You don't have to read a book. If you are in touch with your life, it will speak to you. God will speak to you through it. If we just let reality get to us, Yes, that's the one I was we looking for. We will be converted. To. Yes. Can you settle into your life in a way that lets reality get to you? And again, he's talking in that context about the bias toward the bottom. Are you willing to be to live in solidarity with someone different than yourself? And that's one of the one of my questions I was going to ask you is what circumstances converted you? But I feel like you just described one. And one of the what it reminds me of is the circumstance I was going to share was going back to when my children were little and I was living in another town and feeling like I needed something. I was looking for like an anchor, something. And I wasn't finding a group of people that I could do that with. And so I picked up um, this workbook. <laughs> it still cracks me up. You know what I'm going to say? It's called Experiencing God written by Henry Blackaby. It's a very, from a very traditional uh, mindset. And it is a thick workbook. It is like hardcore, right? It is so not me. And you're supposed to finish it in like 90 days or something, maybe. <laughs> I just can't imagine you getting to the point where you would want to pick up a workbook. Exactly. My kids were a little, I was like desperate. And I was feeling guilty about not having a devotions. Okay, that was like a big thing in my church upbringing that as a Christian, as a Christ follower, you should have a devotional time every day. You should get up early. This was part of the formula. And you should read your Bible and pray. That was talked about all the time as if doing those three things would fix everything. Would just... Well, you'd be moving up the ladder. Of course. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And it's... You know, so there were people that were really good at it, and they were somehow it always came up in conversation. I was having my devotions this morning, you know, and it made me think of you or whatever. But I was struggling with that because I had three children under the age of four. I couldn't do anything every day at the same time, no matter what. Like, life was chaos. And here I'm feeling like I'm far from God, you know, like I'm not really following close to him. I'm not really a true follower, you know, whatever, like all that bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, it's good. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, the workbook came and I told God, I will work through this whenever I have the opportunity. If you will create a window in my day, I will do this. It took me probably, (laughs) I want to say 18 months. (laughs) I mean, it was more than a year that it took me to get through this workbook. I mean, it was little sections. But fortunately, at the end of each one, it was like, what are you going to do about it? You know, like, what will you do today in response to this? And some of the, like, I would make the the smallest baby step, you know, like, I will think about it. (laughs) 
I will, you know, ask God to help me want to do it. You know, like it was, I was the, the low bar was a good with me. Anyway, I worked through the workbook and I got near the end and I really felt like all this time I had been taught to, that it was important for Christians to be with other Christians and that you really need to be careful about the relationships that you would have with anybody who's not a Christian in New England. It's basically everyone, right? That's how you feel anyway. In that, in that context, it is. So this meant anybody basically who didn't go to your church. It didn't just mean Christians. It meant anybody who wasn't sitting in the pew next to you. And I was living in a little town and I remember looking out at the white, I had literally a white picket fence. And I looked at it and it was the dividing line between my house and my neighbor Jody. And Jody had two kids at the time. She and um they were the same ages as my kids. The kids would play together. But I always sort of kept her at arm's length. Like, you're different from me. (laughs) It seems so ridiculous when I say it now, but at the time it felt very real. And I remember looking at that fence in response to whatever I had read in that workbook, which was really about like listening to God's voice and taking action. And I thought, I need to act like there's no fence there. And I called her and I said, Jody, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you today and I'm praying for you that you'll have a good day. And she, I had no idea what she would say. And for me as a like shy, you know, introverted person, that was a huge risk. And I said that to her very simply and bluntly. And she was so gracious and she said, Don, you have no idea what that means to me. Like, thank you. Do you want to come over for lunch? <laughs> it was that kind of thing. And that circumstance converted me that there is no line, that dividing wall of hostility. Right. right? Yes. Perfect. It was that moment that I thought, this is crap. This is ridiculous. I don't need to be divided from you. I don't need to be standoffish. We don't have to align in the same beliefs for you to be a person that I value, that I let in, that I'm vulnerable with. Or even someone that you could learn from. Yes. Right. I think that some of the teachings in the church make us stand in a place of superiority. Absolutely. Where we feel like, well, we know, and it's a threat to consider learning from a Zen Buddhist. Right. Well, as you know, I have a dear friend, Ed, who's a Buddhist, and I have learned so much from him Mm -hmm. that has deepened my faith, deepened my walk with Christ. Mm -hmm. Right. That truth is beautiful. And, you know, I feel like that's a lot of what Richard talks about in Oh, I like this because it was practical encouragement, which sometimes we're short on in churchy books. (laughs) Richard says, I would like to offer some practical encouragement. Many of us first take the outward journey and discover outside of us a reality that's broken or poor or wretched. And in the process, we learn compassion for ourselves. Many of us begin from within and are driven outward. In either case, we have to go the whole way. If you go the whole way inward... So contemplative prayer, Mm -hmm. there you'll discover something that's broken and poor and in need of compassion. In the language of St. Francis, this is called the leper within us. Francis couldn't bear to see lepers, but he says in his testament that as soon as he embraced the first leper, what had once been hateful to him became sweetness and life. Mm -hmm. Many of us first have to learn to embrace the leper within us before we can embrace the leper outside. In the final analysis, it's the same act of compassion. And it's not a compassion that we produce, but a compassion that's given to us. Mm -hmm. 
I just love that. I remember when we read this, I was yep. just in fits of glee over the radical journey inward. At one point, he calls it the radical journey yes. inward. Toward your own powerlessness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we played around with that phrase, like, what does that mean? Right. It sounded cosmic, you know, like right. a radical journey inward toward your own powerlessness. That's a calling. And then he he counterbalances it with the, a radical journey outward. Right. And being amongst people whom you might consider the powerless as part of that journey. So the, the center that he has, the center, I love the even just the title of it, for action and contemplation. And he says in here, like, they were purposeful about putting the word action before contemplation. I guess because of the notion that Christians like to talk about things in their circles and never move outside, you know, of that circle. Uh, which was my experience. So I, I, sh- I guess I should say that from my own experience. That's how it felt very much. And that's that was definitely my starting point was the inward journey out. Was that yours? Would yeah. you say? Did you De- identify yes, it that way? Yes, very much. Uh-huh. And I've, I talked about how my husband has had the opposite experience very much. Mm-hmm. Um, the outward journey in. He's very much in. a doer. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's done that outward journey and it's led him in. Yes. To the things that are yeah. real and true and powerful. Yeah. yeah. But going the whole way. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I love that. The other thing I was thinking about when I first read this book, he has that exercise in there about the boats. Do you remember this? So he talks about, I want to say, stream of consciousness. Like a lot of times we're very in touch with, when we talk about a journey inward, we're very in touch with how we feel about things, what we think about things, um, analyzing things, judging things. that type of internal reflection is not letting go. And an exercise in, to get to that place of letting go where you can set those things aside so that God can heal you, speak to you, call you into the place where he really, you know, has a, a use for you, is picturing um, a river going by and that there are boats going down the river and you're just sitting on the side and you're watching them go by and each boat has a name. And I remember on the page of that book, I decided just to do the exercise. And so I, you name each boat the thing that is present to you, the thing that is like what you think is true about you or what is real in your life. It could be your failures. It could be your strengths. It could be your job, your kids. Why you're right about something. Yes, anything. <laughs> and, and so I, I wrote all around the margin of like the whole page, and I think I had to go to the second page of the boats that would be going by. I found it to be a really great exercise for somebody who is more inner-minded anyway, and silence and sitting come easily to me. I look for those things, solitude. But this was a different experience of naming the boats, you know, worries about my kids, friction in my marriage, the bank account is not where it should be, you know, kind of whatever. I'm not enough, I'm too much those boats, right, that always come around. And what he says in the exercise, you can't jump in the boat. You'll realize, like, the boat may come around again, and you'll realize you've been riding in that boat. And you need to stay on the side and be able to observe your feelings, because he says things, too, that I think are very astute, and you hear in other places, like, if your feelings have you, unless you can detach from them. You don't repress them. You don't need to like stifle them, but you need to be an observer basically of your own inner life. And then you can learn from it. 
you can grow, you can adapt, you can change that aspect, you can move toward the light, you know, the life. And not jumping in the boat is part of that. So, so you get to the place where you are just kind of watching it go by and go, oh, that's true, but it doesn't define me. You know, I'm all right. And whatever God would speak to you in that moment, the peace that comes in that situation. So I love that exercise. And for anybody who would want to read this book, I would highly recommend it. It comes near the end. So stick with it. (laughs) But it's well worth the time. Should we talk about Ephesians a little bit? Sure. Yes. So I feel like this is kind of a big topic for us. We've talked for a long time about the importance of reading bigger pieces of scripture because as N.T. Wright, one of our favorite teachers who shall be coming up in future (laughs) weeks, says, uh, you have to be able to... You have to be able to consider the difficult bits, as he says, along with the bits that you love. Right. And so Ephesians, there aren't too many difficult bits, but there's a few toward the end. You know, the wives submit to your husbands. And in our context, what does that mean? And a lot of people have really misused that. Mm -hmm. To use that as a hammer. Right. Oh, and the name of his podcast is another name for everything. He has a podcast, Richard Rohr. Oh, okay. Um, that I just wanted to say. That's why I looked that up. What's it um, called? Another, another name, name for everything. It's just you want to sit at his feet and learn. Yes. But so you had asked me to read the entire book of Ephesians. Right. At church. Yes. And we knew, we talked a lot about that people do not expect a 15-minute scripture reading when they go to church. Right. And yet the result of that is people only ever hear these little bits and pieces, and they're so easily manipulated mm-hmm. by whoever is teaching. Not that they're always misused, or and other times it's unintentional, but it mm-hmm. skews what this is, which is a letter right. to a group of people that are trying to start a community. Mm-hmm. And it's written by a first century Jewish scholar mm-hmm. who has his human flaws. Mm-hmm. In real places, right. real times. Right. Yep. So some of that we sort of accept culturally, like, you know, the head coverings and all Mm -hmm. these things that he writes about. And yet then people will use other parts of his letters as hammers. Well, this is absolute truth. It's the inerrant word of God. Well, no, no, it's not. It's the words of Paul inspired by God, inspired by his walk with Christ, which there is so much beauty and so much to learn from. Right. At a time and place in which he was writing specific to specific people. And their whole culture was on a journey. Yes. You know, sort of the corporate journey of working out salvation. Right. Yep. So um, any thoughts about Ephesians? Do you want to, are you going to read some of it? Well, we had talked about maybe reading the bit about, you had asked me at church to read the message translation. Right. Just the wording around wives submit to your husbands is. He saves it for the end. Oh, here it is. (laughs) Yes. So this is chapter five. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to the church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Mm -hmm. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. 
Interesting, right? That's that's one we've heard oh numerous times in you know various contexts, but typically with the same point. At least this is gonna go into a whole nother talk in terms of like purity culture and you know how should a woman be? How should a man be? And we get so mixed up in terms of what do we do with that, right? I mean, when, when you and I did this, this sermon, I guess, if you will, right, on a Sunday morning, it's been one of the ones that people will come up and talk to me about still. You know, that doesn't always happen. You know, it doesn't really matter kind of how much work you put into something. It's really like what people receive. And it's interesting that it had that effect. I remember saying at the time that this text can be used to, I'll just use regular language, keep women in their place. Um, And we see that in churches all over the place, even now. Women not being valued or trusted in leadership roles and those kinds of things. Women being told to stay in marriages that were harmful to them because of scriptures like this. And then everybody has a, there's a particular circumstance in each one of those scenarios, right? But that text being used as a one-size-fits-all type of thing. And what's interesting is used by whom? <laughs> and the person in power can use it as they will, right? And so I remember saying, and and this was very important for me to hear too, and I can't, of course, remember like, Who did I, where did I read this from? This isn't my original knowledge. You know, like I had to do some research and I don't have my notes from that talk in front of me. I can't remember. But the idea that scripture represents a culture moving forward. There's a way to read it like that. So that the idea that in this place and time when Paul was writing, that women would even be addressed in a letter was a step forward. Because uh, women were pretty much property at that point, that a husband would be spoken to about how to treat his wife was a step forward. So being given a place in the conversation was a step forward. That we miss, you know, because we don't live in that kind of culture anymore. And so we don't see it as a step forward, we see it as a step backward. But the spirit of it being, and he says it over and over in, in, you know, different metaphors that he's using about love, love one another, respect one another, cherish one another. Those are hard things to live out. That was really meaningful for me to understand, to be able to go back and take in some of those scriptures that are hard to read. And one of the things that I love that Richard says, Richard Rohr, is how we as Americans tend to read scripture from the standpoint of the victors from the standpoint of power when it has been written by and for people without power people who are oppressed and you know we were just listening to a woman talk and she was saying about you know this these pages were written by brown people who had been enslaved these words are not written by white americans and they are not meant to keep power structures in place. They're not. (laughs) (laughs) And we use them that way because we've missed it at some point. We've we've stayed on the path of I want to be successful, right, and powerful. And Jesus, that was not his path. That is a whole new way for me of looking at scripture, even as a woman who could claim some of those victim status type things, you know, like that 
particular passage being one of them. Um, I've had that verse quoted to me. I had that verse quoted to me by a boyfriend. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Right? Where does that come from? What is wrong with that picture? Anyway. Um. (laughs) <laughs> well, he he taught in in simplicity. Richard Rohr talks about that right now. Christianity is growing in third world countries, mm-hmm. not here. Here it's shrinking, mm-hmm. and it's so obvious when you look at it that way. It's because people who are powerless in our world power structure. Mm-hmm. That have nothing, they get it. This is good news. They get it. It's good news. Yeah. And they, you know, that, that very difficult thing about he's strong in our weakness, mm-hmm. they live it. They mm-hmm. know what that power is. Mm-hmm. And we have a hard time finding it. Right. Because we have so much to lose. Right. Or we feel that we do. Yes. We have things to protect. Yeah. And he does talk about the gospel, that you can only really access the gospel when you don't have anything to protect anymore. You know, and he talks about the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, being like one of the things that American Christians have missed entirely because we don't experience that. And until we settle ourselves in places or put ourselves in the position to be in solidarity with someone without power, and we won't understand that until we start to understand it through the eyes of someone else. That's a challenge. That's so challenging. How do you do that? How do you do that with dignity and respect for someone else? Right? <laughs> right. And that reminds me of that image of the communion table and who's hosting it. Right. Right. We think, oh, we have the answer is food and we have uh, <laughs> we know all about economics right. or right. theology. And so we shall host this table for all these poor people that don't have money, don't have God, don't have food, don't have hope, Name it. Yeah. whatever what we, perceive we think they, they don't have. Mm-hmm. So we c- consider ourselves the perpetual hosts when really we right. should be the guests. We should be coming to the table sur- completely surrendered and let someone else host the table. And how do you do that? I've asked myself that question. How am I going to do that? Like, that is what I'm asking God right now. Like, show me how to do this. Because I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to see the world with a different lens. I feel like I get glimpses of it. And certainly, Richard Rohr and, and others have helped me with that. But I feel embarrassed a little bit, even to be talking about it publicly. Because I don't know. But I want to. And I hope that when God puts something in my path and it's a risk for me, that I will say yes. I know that that's, it's possible that three years from now, five years from now, I won't be in this same spot using the word they as, without <laughs> faces attached to it. Right. That I will hopefully have a table that I sit at where there's a we with other people that don't look like me or talk like me or believe like me, I see that as really important. You know, I'm not sure how. I feel like that's what God's doing. Yeah. So what book do you want to do next? I'd just like to introduce it. Well, I was thinking about a Nadia book. Okay. Do you think? Sure. Since that's sort of fresh from seeing her and... I think this is the best one. Okay. What do you think? I agree. Yeah. So Accidental Saints will be the next book by Nadia Boltz-Weber. If you don't know anything about Nadia, you're in for a treat. She's fantastic. She's very blunt, which I love. She's hilarious. She's funny. 
and very authentic and in solidarity with people. You know, you hear that throughout each of her books that I've read. She's describing life from the from the viewpoint of another person. And, and from the bottom, if you will, yeah. of her place and time. Mm-hmm. The people that are considered outcasts. In the church world. Right. Yeah. And in regular I guess in culture too, too right. but I read it particularly for you know the lepers that church people don't want to touch, don't want to be near, don't want to want to leave out. And she has an entire community of people with things to say and a richness and a beauty. She's a Lutheran minister, and this book follows, I think, a liturgy, if I remember. I can't wait to discuss it. Yay! Yay! Yeah, it'll be good. All right. Should we Anything close with else? a little benediction? Yes. Have you thought of anything? To... I thought of the ironic blessing. Oh, what's that? Well, you know, Aaron's blessing that we did oh. at our retreat. <laughs> I thought you meant ironic. Ironic. Well, that's <laughs> that's what um, Dallas Willard calls it. So, you know, I'm a student of Dallas Willard. Yes. So he calls it the great ironic. 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 Aaron. As in Aaron. As in Aaron. Not ironic. Right. As in the irony of it right. all. Um, that I love. And as Dallas yes. Willard says... You can't go wrong with yes. the first blessing. Right. Do you remember it? Parts of it. Yeah. I think it goes, may God bless you and keep you. May he lift his countenance to you. May his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you and give you peace. Shalom. Thank you, friends, for joining us today. I'm Tanya, and we are the Back Pew Book Club. If you want to hear more of our conversations, please visit us at our website, which is giftgirls.blog. There we have links to the accompanying scripture reading, which is Ephesians. And we also have reflection questions that you can use for your personal time with your journal or in a group. And, of course, we have a link for the book so that you can buy it. You will not regret it. So until next time, may you have Many good conversations and read excellent books. Goodbye.